Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bound, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This is China Week. Because amid all of this talk about steel tariffs and aluminium tariffs, there's still a lot of tension between America and China. They're still involved in this war of words, or as the Chinese expression goes, a war of saliva. <laughs> yeah, so right now it's mostly war of words, right? Words of saliva, That was Ling Ling Wei of the Wall Street Journal. So in this episode, as well as summing up what's been going on recently, we're going to try and give the perspective of some of the people Chad spoke to when he was in Beijing a few weeks ago. And while we're trying to give the Chinese perspective, I should say right here that I spoke to some journalists, some academics, and some more normal people in China. But that being said, these are all people that have been following relatively closely the events that have been going on. Okay, so where are we? The first thing to say is that it looks like the tariff threats and the trade war, they're definitely not on hold anymore. So the Trump administration has said that on June 15th, it will publish its list of products that it will hit the Chinese with in terms of tariffs, and that those tariffs will go into effect shortly after. The Chinese also have their list of products that if, if the Americans would hit them, they said they'd hit back with. Things could get really messy very, very quickly if those threats are enacted. The second thing to say is that talks between the Americans and the Chinese do seem to be ongoing. The latest delegation, uh, it was led by Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. He went to China to you know, haggle over the details of a deal. There was a statement that came out after that meeting that didn't seem to suggest that they'd agreed a whole lot, but the two sides are at least negotiating over something. Each side has made really big demands in terms of what it wants from the other. So it's not surprising they haven't come to a quick deal here, but there really isn't anything apparently close to a resolution yet. That said, the third thing to mention is that there are some tangible outcomes that have already come out. So a little while ago, the Chinese put tariffs on American sorghum, which is this kind of grain. uh, And recently the Chinese lifted those tariffs. And it was great because you could see the boats turning round as it was newly profitable to send them into China. The other thing that actually was announced was Wilbur Ross said that essentially they'd worked out a deal with this Chinese company called ZTE. So in a previous episode, we explained how essentially the US government had been sanctioning ZTE, stopping it from buying American semiconductors and American inputs, which is putting it out of business. Now it looks like instead of just banning them from buying all these inputs, they're going to make ZTE pay a fine of around a billion dollars. And so that conflict has been resolved. That was very, very important for the Chinese because if this company had been pushed out of business, that would have meant huge job losses and it would have been very politically difficult for them. But even these two examples are lifting trade barriers that had only recently been imposed. So the sorghum tariffs were China's retaliation for the Trump administration's solar panel tariffs back in January. And the ZT sanctions had only newly been imposed as well. So it's not as if we're actually liberalizing trade here or making any major reforms. It's even here just backing off some initial threats and tariffs that had been imposed. The fourth thing that people should keep track of when thinking about U.S.-China relations is obviously North Korea. Definitely watch that space. Okay, so that's what everyone should be keeping track of. 
thinking about how this all plays from the Chinese perspective, we should talk about what the U.S. side is actually asking for in these talks. So there are various different things that they're asking for. The first one seems to be that the Chinese buy more American stuff. They want them to buy more energy, more agriculture products. Yeah, the initial demands of the administration's first trip to Beijing back in early May put the number of the bilateral trade deficit reduction that they wanted to achieve at two hundred billion dollars. And so, imagine asking China to buy two hundred billion dollars more of agricultural product. It seemed like a really, really big and perhaps unreachable demand, but this was one of the big ones they were asking for. So this is kind of unusual. On the one side, the Americans are accusing the Chinese of not operating according to market forces, and here the Americans asking the government to sort of force these transactions onto onto Chinese buyers. But you know, there we go. Generally, I think it would be surprising if the only thing that came out of these talks was that. You know that Chinese buyers would put in some more orders for American soybeans. And so we had this big Section three hundred one investigation and announcement back in March that published this report about big concerns over how the Chinese system was operating. The Made in China twenty twenty five policy. It seemed like, at least for some people within the administration, these talks with China were actually going to be about those types of issues as well. So there was a set of American demands that were leaked to the press, and it included the demand for the following promise from the Chinese: China immediately will cease providing market distorting subsidies and other types of government support that can contribute to the creation or maintenance of excess capacity in the industries targeted by the Made in China 2025 Industrial Plan. So here, basically, the Trump administration is accusing the Chinese government of picking winners, subsidizing particular strategic industries, and trying to dominate American business in the process. But when I spoke to people in China, the impression there is that the Trump administration sees this "Made in China 2025" policy as some kind of plan for world domination, and in practice, that's just not what it's all about. Here's economics professor Bai Chong from Tsinghua University in Beijing. What China? Wants to do is to achieve sustained economic growth. We all know that to achieve sustained economic growth, you have to have technological advance. Otherwise, you know our labor force is shrinking, and it will keep shrinking. And we have made huge amount of investment. So by Achieving economic growth through more investment, through more employment of labor, is、uh, no longer workable. So we have to achieve technological advances in order to sustain economic growth. So for that, the government made up this policy package, trying to stimulate technological advancement. About made in China 2025, there are different opinions in China as well. Some people doubted that a lot of government intervention would work. They would propose more market-based methods to stimulate technological advance. Other people believe that government intervention works better. So there are different opinions. So I think there's still debate about it, and what's going to be carried out, how the policy will be carried out, is still yet to be、uh, fully determined. I think it's an aspirational goal. Even for the goal, 
I don't think the goal is to achieve world dominance. Rather, it's、uh, for achieving sustainable economic development, and also to make China less vulnerable to sudden stoppage of supply of key ingredients of production. And here's Yuan Yang of the Financial Times. The impression you get when you read what the U.S. government writes about Made in China 2025 is that it's like a blueprint for world domination. It's this kind of very creepy and evil thing. That's a, it's a plan. It's like the the master plan that that they've managed to formulate. Made in China 2025 is obviously a, a a public government document. It's something that government here is very proud of. It will talk about it. It will analyze it at length at conferences. Academics have done deep studies into it, discussing it as you know. The the blueprint for the next、uh, next ten years, sure, but also just as a public document. So it's not like you know the Snowden leaks for the NSA or the, it's not something that the government has been trying to put underneath the carpet. And if you're a, a business CEO in China, you probably will talk about it as well openly. So I, I raise that as the kind of difference because when the U.S. criticizes Made in China. For the Chinese side, that's heard as criticism of China having any industrial policy and any ambition to become a tech superpower, any ambition to reach beyond where China is right now and improve itself. So criticism, I think, of made in China is seen as a signal to stay in your lane, China. You know, we're we're number one, we're the U.S.、Uh, why do you think you can overtake us in this regard? But the genuine ambition, I think, from looking at the way that President Xi sees. Cybersecurity and sees technology policy in China is not necessarily an offensive against the U.S., but defensive. That if China doesn't doesn't engage in these industries and AI and robotics and so on in the next few years, then it may be too reliant on other powers like the U.S. or it may be beholden to their political whims, as we've seen in the ZTE case. So both Yuan and Bai Chong refer to the ZTE case. As a reminder to the Chinese of their vulnerability、uh, to U.S. action, you know this this company was almost destroyed by the U.S. decision to stop allowing it to use U.S. inputs. Now, obviously, we've had today's announcement where that has been partially reversed, and you know now we have the the company paying a billion dollars. But I suspect that reaction of the Chinese that won't have changed much. That reminder will still be ringing in their ears. So, as well as this U.S. demand for China to stop its industrial policy of "Made in China 2025," the Americans made a demand for the Chinese to cut their tariffs. The demand was that by July 1, 2020, China will reduce its tariffs on all products in non-critical sectors to levels that are no higher than the levels of the United States corresponding tariffs. That's kind of reciprocity, I suppose, in tariff levels. So, if the U.S. has a two point five percent tariff on cars, then it wants the Chinese to have a two point five percent tariff on its cars. And that's the Trump administration's definition of reciprocity, not the same definition of reciprocity that others in the world might have. So, interestingly, I did speak to some people in China who thought that maybe some of this U.S. pressure could actually be useful for China. So, here again is Bai Chong. I agree that not all our sectors. Are open enough, especially some of the services sectors. I would like to see more openness. There are debates about it in within China, but a lot of people think we should have more openness in the services sectors. The Chinese government has already offered to make the financial sector more open. 
That means it was not very open before. And healthcare, we can benefit so much from a more open healthcare sector. Elderly care, we are starting to age very rapidly. This whole society is starting to age very rapidly. We don't have experiences uh, dealing with aging issues. A lot of other countries do. For example, Japan has been dealing with aging issues for a long time. We can certainly benefit from the experiences of these developed countries, which have dealt with the aging issue for many years. Some will say that the Chinese government would have done this anyway. Lingling Wei of the Wall Street Journal seems skeptical of that idea. In a way, it definitely is having an impact on China. It's very evidenced by President Xi Jinping's speech at Boao Forum in March, right? Of course, the official media saying the speech has been months in the making, had nothing to do with the pressure from the U.S. But privately, when you talk to government officials, they do acknowledge that the U.S. pressure is helping move things along, accelerate plans to liberalize, for example, financial services industry in China. But of course, they would say, oh, this is something we always wanted to do. However, they do admit that the U.S. pressure helping speeding things up. So these Trump actions could actually be helping the Chinese administration do things they want to do anyway. I think the other way of understanding the Chinese approach is to look at what they're asking for. The Chinese government does have their own set of grandiose demands. Some interesting elements on the list. They want restoration of cooked chicken exports to the United States. But more importantly, you often hear them talk about this. They want an easing of U.S. export controls. So they want to buy more sensitive American technology from the United States that the United States government has been unwilling to let companies sell to China. Now, I'm not optimistic that this is one of the items that they're ultimately going to get, but they've been asking for this. This is basically an opportunity for the Chinese to address long-standing gripes that they've had with the Americans. So they want Chinese aviation equipment to pass the U.S. inspections. They also want to be treated as a market economy when the U.S. applies anti-dumping duties on them. So we had an episode on this. It was episode 15. Essentially, when the U.S. applies protective tariffs on some of its products against China, it calculates them in a very punitive way. And China would like the way that it does that to be made more lenient. And of course, their other big ask is that the United States take these tariff threats off the table. No $50 billion worth of tariffs, no additional $100 billion worth of tariffs. They want the tariffs to be taken off the table entirely. So those are the Chinese demands, but it's not the case that there's total unity within China on the best way to approach this. Here's Lingling Wei from the Wall Street Journal again. Just like in the United States, there are divisions in, among different groups on certain issues. In China, even though the party, the government, speaks with one voice, there are divisions in terms of how to deal with this whole trade situation. There are definitely groups of people who are advocating a harsher approach to the U.S. Basically, their argument is that if we were to make concessions, the U.S. should make similar concessions. And there are groups of people who are trying to take advantage of the U.S. pressure to accelerate reforms, real kind of reforms in China. So it's, again, it's a tough balance faced by the policymakers. And it's 
in particular by President Xi Jinping because he is the one who ultimately caused the shot. In terms of the trade conflict, it's very clear that he doesn't want a trade war. That's why we're seeing all those negotiations that that, that have been going on. On the other hand, he also doesn't want to appear weak. And what may be familiar to our American listeners, at least to some of the extended families that I know, disagreements can even run within families. So here's Professor Jia Daozhong from Peking University. Our society is probably going to be a lot more divisive than what you imagine. It's not as unified as you think at all. Like even even when I go home, I came from Anhui.、Uh, my、uh, elder brother is an honest farmer in the countryside. He reads his set of news. He and I can barely talk about anything. After you know, he reads about it and he reads about it. There's lots of criticism of people like me as a scholar of international studies being weak, being spineless. China is being abused. All these kind of sloganish type of things, and the kind of negativity he gets is the preparation, should I say, for a call for him to buy China, to be patriotic, encouraging him to spend money on Chinese brands or on local products. After I heard that. I was interested in whether all this tension could perhaps lead to a Chinese consumer boycott of American products. Here's Yuan Yang of the Financial Times. There's a distinction here, I think, between what the government says it's going to do and then what people, what Chinese citizens do in response to a perception that the government wants them to do that. So there's kind of reading between the lines. So at the time of the China South Korea tensions ramping up,、um, there's a huge boycott of a South Korean retail chain, which is also was at the time very popular in China and eventually closed a lot of its、uh, stores in China called Lotte. On, at the time in China, you could see on social media, on on the news, not on the on, not on the state media, who were quite careful to not show too much of this. Videos that went viral of even school kids saying, "Oh, we're going to boycott South Korean products," or people、um, talking about why they weren't buying from Lotte anymore, or why they weren't going to go on holiday to South Korea anymore. And that's a real, you know, uprise of nationalism, of economic nationalism from just ordinary people. You can't say. These people have been instructed by the government to do this.、Um, I think what happens instead is that in the national media, in the state-owned media, and particularly you know, CCTV, the state、uh, television channel, which is predominantly watched by, let's say, older people、um, who come from a more nationalistic generation, think you know, think my grandparents, they're going to start messaging the idea that. China is suffering because this big bully, whether it's South Korea or, or the U.S., the biggest bully, is now threatening to do all these terrible things to China. And isn't this unfair for Chinese people? Don't don't you feel that this is a great injustice? To be clear, it really doesn't seem like, so far at least, there's any sort of boycott going on. But just to check, I spoke to Cao Lydia. She's in her early 30s. She works in Beijing in public affairs. She has one son. I asked her about this trade war stuff and. When she and her friends talk about it, if they can imagine boycotting American brands, I don't think boycotting U.S. brands is possible in China,、uh, because、uh, there are so many brands that we can even tell they're U.S. brands or European brands. In my opinion, they're international brands, global brands. Yeah, so it's really hard to have a clear division, and these brands have been. Part of our lifestyle. It's really hard to divide them. 
Okay, I'm going to be completely honest. I have no idea whether there's going to be a boycott, but it's just one of the things to keep in mind uh, if these trade tensions rise again. And I think that's a happy note to end things on. So that's all the trade talks. I'd like to send out a huge thanks to everyone that I met and spoke with when I was in Beijing. And that includes... And I'm just going to apologize on Chad's behalf for his pronunciation. Cal Lydia Suya Xiao from CF40. Professor Bai Chong from Tsinghua University. Professor Zhao Zhidong from Peking University. Lingling Wei from the Wall Street Journal. And Yuan Yang from the Financial Times. And the biggest thanks goes to my Peterson Institute colleague, Sichuan Huang, for keeping me entirely on track when I was there in Beijing. I'm forever in her debt. And it's her, you heard, being the voice of the Trump administration in making its demands to the Chinese. So please do not forget to follow us on Twitter, social media, etc, etc. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to trade wars, understanding two sides is better than one. Yeah. Okay, so in our last episode, we had a poll as to whether or not we should keep the joke. And apologies to the joke haters out there. 54% said keep the joke. 9% said ditch the joke. 37% didn't seem to be listening for long enough to realize that there was a joke. Or maybe they didn't know that it was a joke. Yeah. I don't know. We did also receive a good number of tweets about this from our listeners as well, so thank you for those. But one of the best was this one from Jeremy Caney, who wrote, quote, Two weeks ago, I was playing Trade Talks on our home audio. Just before it ended, there was a glitch in the connection, preventing the end from finishing. And from the other room, my wife cries out, Why'd you stop it for the joke? So for the sake of my marriage, I vote yes. Jeremy Caney and Jeremy Caney's wife, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>